Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Stormcast. This is a Stormcast you definitely don't want to miss because it impacts everyone's lives. You know, for the past couple of weeks, my director of operations, John Keyes, and I have been in these very intense budget and numbers, budgets, appropriations, line items, um, the discipline that is necessary to run a business, make sure you have the balance sheet, that the spending is where it needs to be. Um, because I, don't, I know if you don't, the interesting thing about the president and the national emergency, the reason why the Congress vetoed it and why they felt it was giving him too much power is because the president wanted to take from a line item the defense spending and put it towards the wall. And someone like John understands why that is chaos. He once worked at the Pentagon before he came on board working with us. But what I want to talk about first, let me welcome my guests, um, Jason Russell from the Weekly Examiner and John Keyes, who's my director of operations. What I'd like to talk about first is that there's this debate always before Congress where you talk about budgets and appropriations. People assume that budgets are going to pass. Mm -hmm. The budget is not going to ever pass. It's not even going to pass in 2009. It's just a budget. It means it's subjected to change. But budgets are quite different from appropriations. The appropriations are the, the 12 bills that must pass before October 1st because there will be another government shutdown. And I think it's very important for people to understand what it means by budgets and appropriations. So let me start with you, John. Talk about the, the difference between the budget and the appropriations language. Well, I think budgets, basically, it's, it's your plan for the year. Um, so you start with researching the previous year to find out how you spend money, um, where you fell short and where you overspent, um, and then you adjust. You adjust for the, for the next year. So in the next year, when you're building your budget, you make certain that all the line items have the appropriate amount of funds and that the appropriate amount or, or the, the initiatives with the uh, right priority are the ones that are getting funded. So the budget basically sets the bar for you to make certain that things of priority um, gets funded and gets executed while the uh, other things that may not be of as high of a priority, they'll fall lower in the line items on your budget list. And talk about why the appropriations, particularly when we talk about in the context of Congress and the president, has far more wide-ranging implications. Well, basically because appropriations is what actually happens, right? When, when the president, whether it's Trump or Obama, uh, proposes a budget, uh, Congress says, great, that's nice, and we spend a whole week in the, new, in the news media talking about it, and then it's basically dead on arrival when... You came all the way over here to celebrate St. Patrick's so, Day with us. Uh, yes. You know, Barack Obama's budgets routinely got one or zero votes in favor of them in the Senate, and um, that was always funny for conservatives, but, you know, it's the same thing when Republicans are in uh, the White House, too. But, uh, you know, basically the appropriations, when they go through the committee process and get approved by the House and then the Senate... Um, those are the things that matter because that's what actually determines what actually gets spent by the federal government, whereas the budget is just kind of the president saying, well, it would be nice if we did this. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what I learned, what I've always known, and this is why I appreciate and respect John so much because he's very serious about it. What you learn when, you, when I, as a CEO, receive the budget and the numbers, it tells me as a CEO and for the company what our priorities and our goals are for that year. What our aspirations, if you look at even the president, the budget, the, the president, whether it's something about immigration, mm -hmm. whether it's about taxes, um, it tells you exactly what the president's priorities is going to be for the next year. Talk about how budgets help people organize the business, whether it's the federal government, whether it's their companies. It sort of is a discipline. You discipline yourself to understand this is the direction we want to take the business and these are our priorities. 
Right. So, for example, um, I, I worked for the federal government at the Pentagon and also at headquarters Marine Corps Quantico. And we had a very robust budget process where we had to create um, slides for every budget initiative that we had. We had to back it with policy. We had to back it with the absolute need for growth for the specific sections or the specific units or the needs of the Marines in general. Um, and I mean, when it comes down to it, when you're formulating this budget, uh, you have to plan on a monthly basis and then you also have to plan on an annual basis because you don't just get, like let's say your budget is a total of $3 million. You don't just get $3 million at the beginning of the year. That budget is broken down over 12 months. So every 12 months and sometimes every quarter you get specific drops of capital. And those specific drops of capital are to fuel those specific initiatives. So it's all about timing as well. So when it's not an easy job sometimes to plan a whole year's worth of initiatives and specific execution points um, based on when that money can be available. Because sometimes if in a $3 million budget, you may not be able to access half of that $3 million budget until mid-year. Because at mid-year, they want to assess how you spent the first half and if you're over budget, under budget. So therefore, it will affect the drop after mid-year. You know, here's the thing that we don't really talk about in this administration. You know, in past administrations, especially when Obama was in the White House, we talked about balance in the budget. We got to get spending under control. But spending is so out of control with this administration. It is so outrageous that nobody talks about it, Jason. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, it was something that was when once uh, Republicans took control of the Senate, then, you know, they got together with the other Republicans in the House and they, you know, drew up a plan that said this is how we could balance the budget within 10 years. And of course, there was Barack Obama was in office at the time, so it wasn't going to pass and and make any difference. But it was nice and aspirational. Uh, and then Trump came in and it was, okay, well, well, let's just pass whatever we can get passed. And let's not, let's forget what uh, we tried to do a few years ago when Obama was in office and we couldn't do anything. So, uh, you know, it's some, one of those things that I, I think if the president wanted to uh, have a bigger effect on, he could have said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to veto any budget or any appropriations that don't balance within the next 10 years. Um, but he doesn't seem to care about balance. He doesn't, seem to, he doesn't seem to care about spending. No, I mean, he has his priorities, to be sure. And, he, you know, he wanted to repeal Obamacare and pass tax cuts and fund the wall. Um, and he got one and a half out of those three. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just how presidencies go. You know, you make all these campaign promises and then there's the cold, harsh reality that Congress has to approve all these. And that's 535 people that have their own thoughts and opinions on what should be happening. So... You're not always going to get what you want just because you're the president. You know, I want to come to a more relevant issue that hits us close to the home. Now, there's been a debate over the last couple of weeks about the corruption in academia and how the wealth class pay for their way and their kids' way at these Ivy League schools uh, and how they found this Harvard genius who just can take the test mm -hmm. and get it within one point or one point of the passing grade and also... Sometimes the parent would say, I don't want to make my child look perfect, so make sure the score is, is not as high. And it's just, it just shows you the genius and the talent of what God has given people in this world. Sometimes we use it for good, and sometimes we use it for corruption. But what's lost in this conversation with these young people, let me be clear on the record, I don't think any of these kids should be punished in any kind of way for their parents 
desperation for status, uh, for certain degrees from Ivy League schools. These kids should continue their college education without interruption. We can ill afford to have any kids sideline today. The economy needs everybody. But John, what gets lost in this is that these kids, when they go to these Ivy League schools, I mean, the tuition at some of these schools are fifth and sixty thousand dollars is a semester, a year. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. astronomical. And by the time these kids graduate, they're over a half million dollars in debt. And if you take, and I know the faces of these people, of the people on this with the scandal are supposedly the super rich. Somebody can pay a half million dollars. But basically, these are middle class families. If you look in, at their demographics, the average value of their home, the appraised value of their home, which is their greatest asset, is between three and four hundred thousand dollars. But their kid is graduating from these Ivy League schools, accumulating more debt than the value of their parents' most valued asset. And then these kids graduate; they're put into some entry-level job, paying them fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year. How is it possible for them to budget anything when they spend these outrageous sums on these universities and then they graduate and they expect um, to be debt free? And the government is that slave master. Yeah, I mean, it appears to be that way. I mean, uh, appears? That's an interesting term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it appears to be that way. And I, the reason why I say appears is because, um, you know, fortunately for me, I had my college paid for um, by my veteran status. Um, I was in the Marine Corps for 12 years, so I had the Montgomery GI Bill. So I was actually able to leverage that and get two degrees from one benefit. So, um, so for me, I'm debt free with two degrees, but I know that that's you know not the circumstances of the masses. So I, I well, that's I, a good plug for people right. to join the military. Yeah, I was going to say you, you deserve uh, that yeah, because that's a of your service. Oh no, well, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, a lot of things that people don't realize is that they can get that from only four years of service, and you can also get that from being a reservist. So there's a lot of different ways. I mean, it's it's just it's business at the end of the day. It's leveraging the opportunities that are there. What about those that are not John Keys? <laughs> you see what again, like I said, I, I said appears because, um, you know, I don't really have a lot of conversations with people uh, when it comes to their student debt. No, but um, the issue is how do you budget? How do you start life settled with that kind of debt, not making nearly any kind of income to pay it off? And bills, 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 they come out of nowhere. Oh, what, yeah. Uh, what, what advice do you have for these, for these kids in terms of budgeting? Right. Well, you have to be smart. You absolutely have to be smart. You have to understand what your circumstance is before it happens upon you. So, for example, um, you cannot wait until you graduate college to start saving, mm -hmm. to start putting aside for oh, how are you going to live, how are you going to survive, um, how are you going to get around your transportation, where are you going to relocate to once you graduate and move off the campus. I mean, you have to really start planning for that once you enter, especially if you know your circumstance is that you're going to have all of this debt coming out of college because everyone knows. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that once you graduate college, you're not going to get that executive level six-figure position right away. You're going to do internships. You're going to do entry-level positions. You're going to have to climb up the ladder. I mean, everybody at this point should know that. Is it worth the investment? Well, it depends on how you do it, right? So if you do end up half a million dollars in debt, probably not worth it unless you are going to be a top, top-level doctor or lawyer. Mm -hmm. But if you come out with the average of, of $30,000 in student debt, um, but you've done something well with that. You know, if you've saved up because you've been working during college or you've had good internships during college and you're prepared for a, a good entry-level role, then I think it can be worth it. Um, you know, education can still be useful if you take the right classes and do the right things, 
Uh, though at the same time, uh, you know, working is the best education there is. I remember asking uh, one of my colleagues uh, a few years ago when I had just gotten into journalism if I should go get a master's in journalism degree. And he said, no, you're working with us. That's your master's in journalism. Um, so I, I think how you utilize college and how you make use of uh, the services you get from your tuition payments uh, is what's going to matter a lot in terms of whether it's worth it or not. You know, you know for me, um, when I was growing up on my parents' farm, there are things that were very significant then that truly is the reason why I have been successful financially. You're not successfully financially because you have money. You're successfully financially because of how much money that you actually keep mm -hmm. for yourself. And much of this has to do with budgeting. Now, John would call me frugal. Um, if you're not frugal, and frugality is not a bad word, because you cannot spend more than you earn. Absolutely. And you can do it for a while, but it's going to have lasting, depressing, catastrophic impact on your lives. Because here's the thing we don't discuss enough. And um, if you talk to most people um, and they tell you what their underlying issues are, money is at the center of it. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the relationship, whether it's your home, whether it's your job, whether it's how you feel about yourself. You know, sometimes I talk to people and the whole conversation when they talk about their self-worth self -worth, is how well they're doing it financially and how they're able to provide for their children mm -hmm. and the people that they care about. And then when you have a society that pushes it in every platform possible from athletes to reality TV to American greed to Shark Tank mm -hmm. to CNN business to Fox business, it's went from the business magazines. I, I think you'd be shocked at how many young people use read Entrepreneur, Success Magazine, mm -hmm. Forbes, fortune. They read these magazines because there's this thing that people believe that money will not emulate, eliminate many of your problems, but it can stabilize them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what is the best, so what I've learned early on is before I was able to create wealth, is that I, I was able to scroll away. From the time I was 18 years old, even to the day at my young age, I was able, no matter what, I, no matter how much money came into me, whether it was $60 or $600,000, I was able to scroll away 20%. It doesn't matter what the circumstances were, no matter what was pulling for that money. Because one thing you learn about money, everybody's trying to get your money. Mm -hmm. People make money by taking money out of your wallet, out of Absolutely. your bank account. You have to understand that. Even in business and in sales, people want to get into your wallet and they want to get you hooked to their drug. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, I have been able to scroll away 20%, no matter what season it is, mm -hmm. and put that aside. How, what is the best blueprint? People say it's multi it used to be multi-level marketing when I was coming along. It was real estate coming along. But with the advent of technology, what they have been able to do in the technology space has been incredible. But that's just for a few. It's not realistic for everybody else. What have you learned through your understanding of budgets, of creating wealth, of having financial discipline? What is it that you learn that young people can literally put in place to give them a chance at not necessarily creating wealth, but being financially stable throughout their life? Well, I would say first start by avoiding consumerism. I mean, someone's trying to sell something around every single corner. I mean, every, everything you do throughout your day, every meal you eat, everything you watch on TV, every click you make on the internet, 
someone's trying to sell you something. So you have to avoid that. You have to know what your needs are uh, versus your wants. Um, and the second thing, I find, you know, people who have the most success saving money are the people who actually are, are driven, who have goals that they're really trying to achieve and they're focusing most of their time on that. Because I feel like people spend more money if they have more time. Mm -hmm. If you have less time, you spend less money mm -hmm. because you're focusing your time on something that's probably going to make you money. So when you have that mindset, it's all about training the mind um, to, to, to know what is more important, making money or spending money. So if you're focused on making money and you're doing everything in your power throughout the day to optimize the things that you do throughout the day to get you more time, then you're going to spend less money. So what, let, let, let me continue this narrative because you're a father. You have a son, you and Roland. What about your son's generation. They want the shoes. They want the gadgets. They want the trips. There are things that they just want that were never available to you right. when you were coming along. How do you balance teaching them discipline and respect for how hard the parents work to have what they have and also giving them maybe a, to a certain extent to feel good about the things that he can have with his peers uh, where he can light and shine sometimes but also saying just because you ask for it, you cannot always have it. How do you balance that out of father against all the things that are glaring at him every day? Well, I mean, again, I have to, I have to be honest that I'm really blessed that, um, you know, we've, we've always given my son pretty much everything that we knew that he liked, that he wanted. He lives very comfortably. Um, but You said liked. Liked. Not needed. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, liked um, because, you know, I've at an early age, I wanted to I, I wanted to explore what his preferences were. I wanted to I wanted to learn more about him. So therefore, I allowed him to express the things that he liked and, and the, the, the items that he wanted and whatnot. Um, not to say that he got it all the time. I mean, we're we really leverage birthdays and holidays, obviously. Um, but for the most part, he, you know, he's never, he was re never really a child that asked for a whole lot. However, you know, I, I take really good care of him. Um, if you look at me, you will see the same in my son and vice versa as far as our appearance, um, the way that we carry ourselves for the most part. So, um, I mean, my son knows that the lifestyle that he lives and that we live as a family is different from the way that I grew up. And I mean, it, it's in part because of where we are as a society. But it today. sounds as though he appreciates it and respects it. Oh, no, he it. absolutely he does. It but but uh, so I think that's I think that's because we do a good job of communicating to him the differences of the way we grew up to the way that he grows up now. Hmm. Everything from income levels to where we live geographically, because I grew up in a small town in Louisiana. He's growing up in the suburbs of Northern Virginia. Um, I work in, on Capitol Hill. So it's, it's, it's a lot of difference. So he understands the power of money. He understands the power of a career. And he definitely understands that you get it from hard work because, I mean, he's seen me up till, you know, all hours of the night working on my own startup. Um, he's seen his mother up at night studying for uh, loan officer exams. So we're always constantly bettering ourselves. We're lifelong learners. Uh, we're committed to that. So he sees that. He, I mean, my son is in the 10th grade and he's taking advanced computer math. So he's no stranger to hard work and he definitely understands what's important for him today that's going to help him for tomorrow. How does that, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of the things in that conversation, it was nothing about struggle with the kid. Uh, obviously, he's done a very good job of balancing this child's mental health, mm -hmm. the expectations that he has for his son, 
to understand those expectations, which minimizes any kind of riff attention in the household. That's a very difficult thing to navigate. And it's interesting uh, because it goes back to what is your economy. And one of the things that the president has in his favor right now is there seems to be no slowdown in the economy. And as long as people have money in their pockets, they're feeling good. And John's feeling good. You can tell. John's not complaining about anything. John's feeling, and when John's feeling good, the kid's feeling good. And when the kid is feeling good, the household is good. Mm -hmm. But what happens if Trump's economy changes? Well, if things go south, then... Can it know, go south? It could. Um, you know, no one really saw the, the 2008 financial crisis happening. So, uh, you know, you could, that's why you got to have a rainy day fund, whether you're a government or whether you're a business or whether you're a family. Um, you got to be prepared for those things to happen. Um, even if they're totally outside your control and not your fault that those things are happening. Um, but certainly when, when things like that happen, um, and if you're not prepared for that, then the more you are involved in your community and the more you have friends and family who can help you along, then that's going to be better for you. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, your church can give you some rental assistance or maybe there's a food bank that can help uh, you know, give you a few meals for the week or something like that. But uh, the more you are connected with your community, the more you're going to be better off if you do fall in hard times in a depression or a recession. But you admit we're in a very unusual long run of a strong economy. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I think one thing that... And it blinds people to other issues that may be issues. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think um, one thing that we're not used to is, you know, kind of a malaise that's not like as bad as the recession, right? So uh, at least my generation anyway, you know, we grew up, we you know, graduated high school right around the time that the Great Recession was just starting. And so we're not familiar with, you know, an economic slowdown that's just like things are okay, but we're, you know, we're growing at 1% instead of 2 or 3%. So, uh, you know, we're not familiar with what that's like and how things go when, when that's happening. We're only familiar with, oh, there's a huge blow up and everybody panics and we're not sure what to do. So... I think that'll be interesting to see because um, eventually, you know, just the law of averages is, is that at some point there's going to be a minor slowdown. So uh, I think it'll be interesting to see millennials and, and Generation Z kind of adjust to that after only being familiar with, uh, you know, the worst recession since the Great Depression. You know, what I enjoyed about what you were saying, John, it seems as though your family, whatever you do, you're not competing with the Joneses, your son is not competing with the Mikey's down the street. Um, and it's interesting because what happens in society, which brings about crime, which brings about envy and jealousy and disruption, is that people find what they see in others inadequate in themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but no two people are the same. No two people look at, read a book, and come out with the same understanding of the book. And it, and it has an impact in a very different way. How do you teach? not only your son, but how is it that you don't allow the trappings of other people and what they've accomplished, what they perceive they've accomplished, and what they may have, the impact? Because it seems as though you only compete with yourself. Yes. So first off, I don't hide anything from my son, um, and neither does his mom. Um, we're very candid with him about what we're doing, why are we doing it, what we've done, where we've come from, and where we want to go. So we really have a really good open dialogue in the household about our future, right? Um, and 
like I said, I, I, I'm also a business owner while I'm an executive. Um, so for me, he understands that even though I have a really good career, that I still want to be my own boss, that I still want to control my own destiny and even create legacy for him and for, for, for who comes after him. So um, I, I feel like it's, it's almost as if we've really centered the focus on ourselves as a household and not so much of what we see out there. And social media, to be honest, has made that real easy because social media, you know, when you really drill down to it, it's, it's just a highlight reel. It's, high, it's, it's individuals' highlight reels. So when you look at it, at first you'll be impressed, right? But then when you see that it's just that, it's just that, it's just that, then at that point, at some point you have to realize that, you know, this is just what someone wants to show me. This is not what goes on behind the scenes. This is not what makes even this feed possible that I'm looking at. So once you understand that, that's when you focus in on creating your own feed. So therefore you get immersed in the work, you get immersed in the goals, and then you start accomplishing things. And then once you actually start to accomplish things and you start to see that needle move, it's almost like an addiction to be honest with you. So I'm gonna put you on the spot, Jason. So um, you're dating, it can be very expensive. It gets in the budgets. There are certain things that women expect. There are certain things that you expect. But basically, money is really spent on relationships. It can be an expensive undertaking. And then you spend so many days, months, and time with this person. And you almost feel, well, you know what? I got to make this commitment because I don't want to start this process again. It can be very expensive. How do you, especially for young people in relationships, and it is costly. There's a lot of money that is spent on relationships. Mm -hmm. It's just an expensive endeavor. Yeah, I think one of the important things is to find someone who has the same level of frugality as you. I think that's, there are three things that I've, I've heard, I think it's Charles Murray say that, you know, every relationship you need to have in common to be successful. I think one of them is frugality and one of them is, you know, the amount of cleanliness that you prefer and I forget what the third one is, but. Um, <laughs> so you don't give in to Adeninism. You don't understand what Adeninism is? No. Adeen. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, so <laughs> good. Um, it's, it's, it's all about the Benjamin. I see, right, I right. See. Well, I mean, I, I think if, if there are certain couples where a, a woman expects to be showered and with with money all the time and expects to be, and there are, there are certain men who like to do that, and that, that's their preference, and that's you know their love language or whatever it's called that they love to to give out gifts to their significant other and things like that. But there are other couples where um, you know. The men and the woman prefer to split the bill as much as possible. And, uh, you know, I think if, if you want to see each other and have dinner out two or three times a week, then it, that's the way to make it affordable is to split the bill so that no one's just blowing through all their money. But, um, you know, that, that's what me and Kellen do in our relationship. We are generally splitting dinner when we go out. Um, and that's nothing, that's nothing shameful about that. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, but I, 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 I'm it. still happy to pay the bill on special occasions. But it makes you feel good that she's willing yeah. to do her, play her yeah, part. Yeah, Valentine's yeah. Day, I'm right, like, absolutely. she's, you know, what are you doing? We'll split the bill. I'm like, no, of course you're not. It's Valentine's Day. Absolutely. There's right. a time I'm, and place. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. John, this looks... Yeah, yeah, no, this is interesting because because I definitely think that, you know, two of the main driving factors there would be candor and like-mindedness. Uh, candor, meaning that you're not overstating what your capabilities are. 
Because a lot of people in relationships, especially in the beginning phases, kind of fall into that. You know, they want to put their best foot forward. They want to they they send in their representative, so to speak. Mm. So therefore, they're they might be overstating their income. They might be overstating their capabilities. You know, I mean, I've known people that go as far as to to rent a car for a first date because they didn't think that their car was you know good enough. That's true. I mean, seriously. That's true. And so, you're living a lie. It's just absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. And once you start that way, you want, yeah, you it, it's it's yeah. a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So that's why I say candor first, and then. I obviously like-mindedness. And I mean, you're not always going to find like-mindedness like right off the bat. However, if there's a mutual interest there, then you'll feed off of each other and you'll learn off of, learn from each other. You know, so therefore, you know, you'll adopt characteristics that, you, you know, each one of you have and then you'll, you'll basically figure out how to work together. So, you know, you'll come together and you'll become a unit. So in other words, instead of going to the Ritz Carton for dinner, you go to Ben's Chili Bowl. Yeah. That sets the tone for the relationship. Or you, or you just cook at home. All right, instead of your buying her a gift, you create a gift with your hands. Something that has far more meaning because this is something I've done with my hands. People need to learn that. It's not always about spending money. Absolutely. And there are women who appreciate oh, yeah. those simple touches mm -hmm. by men. They yeah. find it funny. They say, oh, it's so adorable. He picked me up in a Volkswagen or a golf cart. He actually <laughs> right. picked me up in a golf Listen, cart. And, and, and that's the good thing about today. You can be creative in so many ways, yeah. creating a very yes. unique experience for somebody. Yes. That's, that's very true. Very yes. true. And you need to create your own unique experience. Finally, we started with budgets. We talked about money. Isn't this fun? Better than you expect to jump? Jump's a little tight. <laughs> you know what? That's why you have the cap. It's all good. Yeah. So any final thoughts on budgets before we wrap this up? Because I think this is very good. I think a lot of young people and the uh, more mature generation can get a lot from this conversation today. What? Oh, no, no. you good. Well, I think one of the important things is, is keeping your spending down um, in terms of personal finances, right? It's, it's hard to deny yourself, but it's so important. And it, that'll, that's a value that can be used in other aspects of life. It's not just something that's useful for budgets, you know, that's useful for making sure that you don't drink too much or eat too much and uh, making sure that, you know, you're getting your exercise in because you're denying yourself something more fun instead. So, um, you know, recognizing that there are certain things that are better for your long-term good, um, even though it's not as much fun in the short term because spending money is fun, um, you know, it's, it's important to learn how to deny yourself uh, in many aspects of life. And I'm going to tell you how you can really blow up a budget and blow up a relationship when you're dating. Let her tell you that she's pregnant. Okay? If you want to see a, a, a major change in a relationship and in your budget, <laughs> let her say, and she's going to think, oh, it's so excited. No, you're not excited. No, no, not at all. That's another lie. Just let her, the best thing to do is protect yourself. Because if you want a budget that will never be the same again, because you understand something, and I'm going to put it like this. This is going to be my final contribution to this important discussion. We love kids, best in the world, but they're liabilities and assets. And what do I mean by liability? That baby has to be taken care of from in the mother's womb, the birth, until they're 18 years old. I don't know if you get it or not. Imagine where you were 18 years ago. 18 is a long time. And then along the way you have problems, she get mad and you start dating somebody else or you start dating somebody else. Let me tell you something. And the courts and lawyers love making money off your misery and your headaches. When we talked about early in the show, your shortcomings is somebody else's boom for making money. Mm -hmm. So you may need to make sure that when you're in these datings and you talk about budget, because first you start talking about 
um, taking out the dinner, what you're going to pick up in. But let me tell you something. That baby, that's a liability for 18 years. And you're going to love that child, but you may not love the mother. So as you think about budgets, don't budget for the baby unless you're married. I'm Armstrong Williams. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it.